This is the first of what I think will be three podcasts comprising Series 5 of the Evening Under Lamplight podcasts with Robert Louis Abrahamson. I recently gave a talk as part of the season of Christmas lectures with the Workers' Educational Association on Robert Louis Stevenson's final major essay, A Christmas Sermon, and I'd like to share it with you here. It's not just a Christmas essay, but an end-of-the-year essay, and also an any-time-of-the-year essay. So listen in and share this with others you might think would be interested. Now, I've chosen to speak about Stevenson's essay, A Christmas Sermon, for various reasons. First of all, it's a Christmas piece, as its title makes clear. And so it's appropriate for this season, though it's not a Christmas piece in anything like the usual way, as you'll see. And I think this essay is worth speaking about, if only because it's so little known, and yet of lasting importance. And a final reason is that I like this essay. I've been working for about 15 years on Stevenson's essays and have been trying to share them with others, proselytizing, you might say. And, and then there's the personal connection to Stevenson, too, of course, since my parents sort of named me after him. I, I had to be Lewis after Uncle Lewis, who had died a few months before I was born, and something with an R after a grandparent who had died, and, and, and they thought Robert Lewis had a kind of literary ring to it, and so there I was. But all of this has brought us here today to speak about Stevenson's final major essay, A Christmas Sermon. When the essay appeared in America only in the prestigious Scribner's magazine, Stevenson was one of the most celebrated authors in English, and probably the most prominent essayist in the final quarter of the 19th century. He was a prolific writer in a writing career that spanned only about 20 years, from 1874 to his death in 1894, aged 44. The new collected edition of his works that we've been working on with the Edinburgh University Press will come to about 40 volumes, five of these volumes dedicated to his essays. And then there are the eight thick volumes of letters. And we have to count in all the time he spent travelling in various parts of Scotland, in England, and France, and then across America two times, and finally around the South Pacific. On top of that, add in one or two months a year when he was too ill in bed to write very much. Here's how he put it in a letter to George Meredith in 1893 from his home in Samoa. For fourteen years I've not had a day's real health. I have wakened sick and gone to bed weary, and I have done my work unflinchingly. I have written in bed and written out of it, written in hemorrhages, written in sickness, written torn by coughing, written when my head swam for weakness, and for so long, it seems to me, I have won my wager and recovered my glove. I am better now, have been, rightly speaking, since I first came to the Pacific, and still... And still few are the days when I'm not in some physical distress. And the battle goes on. Ill or well is a trifle, so as it goes. I was made for a contest, and the powers have so willed that my battlefield should be this dingy, inglorious one of the bed and the physic bottle. At least I have not failed, but I could have preferred a place of trumpetings and the open air over my head. I quote this at some length because it raises issues that we'll see again in the Christmas sermon. 
I want to give you a brief overview of Stevenson's biography, but before we leave the general topic of his writing, I have one more thing to say about the essays in particular. Stevenson wrote over a hundred essays, noted for their lively, restless, engaged voice and style, and for their literary and psychological perceptions, and also for their variety. Here's a run-through of the various topics covered in the essays. The subjects range from choosing a spouse to playing games with one's food, urban street lighting, medieval French poetry, Japanese book illustrations, and deep sea diving in the North Sea. There are passages describing Mediterranean olive groves, isolated Suffolk landscapes, French artists' colonies, a Catholic mass in a ruined chapel in California, indoor and outdoor amusements at a Swiss sanatorium, barefoot urchins in the snowy streets of Edinburgh, and a frosty night in the snow-clad Adirondack Mountains in upstate New York. There are descriptions of nightmares, murders, railway journeys, lighthouse building, of a Scotch gardener and a Pentland shepherd, of judges and lawyers, writers and painters, pirates, marooned sailors, gypsies and beggars, of a little girl unselfconsciously dancing, and an old dowager fondly chastising a young man by hitting him with her parasol, not to mention extended studies of Burns, Thoreau, Whitman, Hugo, Pepys, and others. Stevenson depicts himself variously as a child welcoming the dawn in his nurse's arms, having been awake all night, or staring through shop windows at the toy theatres, or as a sulky adolescent, moping in a cemetery, playing truant from classes, or riding on top of the mail coach in northern Scotland, or sitting alone in a cottage in the Pentland Hills, reading Dumas late into the night, being arrested in France as a German spy and thrown into a prison cell lying on the roof of a railway carriage slowly making its way across the American plains, tobogganing down winding mountain trails, conceiving of the idea for Treasure Island while playing with his stepson's map, or being inspired in a dream with two images that developed into Jekyll and Hyde. Well, that's just to whet your appetite. So who was Robert Louis Stevenson? He was born into an affluent upper-middle-class household in Edinburgh, his father a prominent lighthouse designer and a strict, not to say dour, Presbyterian, his mother the pious daughter of a minister, and his nurse through his childhood, a fierce Calvinist who frightened him with hell-fire stories. And yet, for all this religious austerity, he was also surrounded with love, an only child, sickly, spoiled, precocious. This changed in adolescence when he began rebelling against his parents' dogmatic religious views and on the Victorian bourgeois complacency and respectability. Stevenson belonged to the first generation that grew up after Darwin's challenge to traditional religion and spent years lost in doubt, refusing to conform to the social expectations of his culture. He was once scolded by a friend of his father's for smoking in public. Gentlemen or gentlemen's sons did not do that. Stevenson did. He attended a course in engineering at the University of Edinburgh, but rebelled here too. He was seldom seen in lectures, and finally announced that he would not enter his father's firm. 
They settled, as one did, on the law, but Stevenson was determined to be a writer. He was lucky in his early twenties to make the right connections with influential English men of letters, who introduced him to the right editors and gave him good advice, mainly to forget for a while his ambition to write fiction and to focus on writing essays for monthly magazines, the most lucrative literary path for a young writer. He found a home in the Cornhill magazine, a prominent monthly and perhaps the best-paying magazine at the time, where he published over 20 essays in less than 10 years, becoming the magazine's tame bohemian and a growing celebrity known as RLS. In his 20s he was still living with his parents in Edinburgh, but escaping as often as he could from the weather as much as from anything else joining the literary Savile Club in London as one of its noisy atheists and spending time in France with a crowd of bohemian artists. He also fell in love with Fanny Osborne, an American ten years older than he, with two children who had fled from her marriage to study painting in France. They lived together whenever he could travel to France or later London, but after a few years Fanny moved back to San Francisco and her husband, and Stevenson felt widowed. We don't know the exact circumstances. There's a mysterious telegram from her, we think. But Stevenson, aged 28, suddenly took off and travelled across the Atlantic and across the American continent to see, to, to rescue, to reclaim, Fanny. His health was broken on this journey, and he had no money while he waited for her divorce to come through. But he had followed his heart and his commitments, and he had greatly enlarged his experience, both with the immigrants in steerage that he'd met on the voyage, and with the underclass Mexican, Indian, and Chinese he came to know in California. Fanny and Lewis were married and reconciled to his parents, who sent money and supported the couple and Fanny's teenage son, not just with a first-class return to Scotland, but subsidising them for the next few years as they wintered in Davos in hopes of a cure for Lewis's lungs, and then in the south of France. During all this time, Stevenson was building his reputation, and by the middle of the 1880s, it was taking off. The collection of witty stories published as the New Arabian Nights had become a cult book among the New York Bohemians. Treasure Island was celebrated almost from the start, followed by The Black Arrow, and then the more popular Kidnapped. And A Child's Garden of Verses sold well from the beginning. But it was the strange case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde that really brought him fame. In fact, Jekyll and Hyde became a common phrase within the year. But remember that letter to George Meredith. Through all this time of increasing fame, and, and I've mentioned only a few of the things he produced in these years, Stevenson was ill, spitting up blood, laid low, delirious from fever or medication. His father bought them a house in Bournemouth to keep him in Britain in the mildest English climate. Stevenson was ruefully amused at now being a bourgeois house owner, but spent much of his time in this house laid up in bed, looked after protectively by Fanny. If he ventured to London to see friends, he would relapse. A trip to Dorchester to visit Thomas Hardy ended in collapse. Well, these are the outer details. The bodily constraints seemed to sober his outlook on life. 
he was no longer the restless determinedly cheerful bohemian but someone weighted down by the duties and responsibilities of family life and a growing pessimism about politics especially conditions in ireland his religious views were changing too no longer the noisy atheist he found a growing faith in a providential arrangement of the world he still strongly opposed religious dogmatism an unrealistic approach to a world that was far too complex for us ever to be certain about anything especially given the inevitable fallibility of our human nature he was then still a rebel here rebelling against victorian complacent optimistic religion this then is where his faith tended as we'll see in a christmas sermon we hold on to our dim faith in doing the right even knowing that we will fail again and again he had been developing these ideas all along, influenced in part by the essays of Montaigne, with their humane and tolerant skepticism, aware of the limitations of human knowledge, and by Walt Whitman's joyful acceptance of all aspects of life, rising above all doctrines. In his late twenties he tried to write a handbook for young men in the position he had found himself in, rejecting orthodox religion and at a loss to discover new values to live by. The book proved too difficult to write, but a few years later he went back to the manuscript, now able to consult with his father about the problems of finding the right language for his unconventional religious views. The book, unfinished, was published after Stevenson's death as Lay Morals, a book C.S. Lewis chose for his reading on the first Christmas day of the Second War, pronouncing it not only the best non-fiction book of Stevenson's but one of the best books by anyone I've ever read. A big change occurred in 1887, when, after several years of increasing frailty, Stevenson's father died. His death freed his son and his widow to travel, not just because he no longer had to be on hand for emergencies, but also because there was now an inheritance. So, Lewis, Fanny, her son Lloyd, the maid Valentine, and Margaret, Lewis's mother, travelled to america stevenson's health picked up on the voyage as did his spirits i had literally forgotten what happiness was he wrote and the full mind full of external and physical things not full of cares and labours and rot about a fellow's behaviour my heart literally sang i truly care for nothing so much as for that in america they had planned to seek the dry weather of colorado for his lungs but I haven't even begun to go into the health problems of Fanny, which, while not as bad as Lewis's, were nevertheless plentiful and distressful. But they heard that the high altitude in Colorado would be bad for Fanny's heart, so they settled on Saranac Lake in the Adirondack Mountains in upstate New York. Saranac Lake was known for its healthful effects on tubercular patients, especially because of the pioneering clinic run there by Dr. Edward Trudeau. The family rented a small cottage with thin walls on the outskirts of the town. It quickly became evident that the house was much too cold for the frozen winter they aimed to spend there, and Fanny and Lloyd spent much of the time away in New York and Boston, where they could be warm and comfortable. Margaret Stevenson, the, the new widow, the very proper Edinburgh matron, showed her pluck by staying in the cottage most of the winter perhaps glad to be looking after her boy without Fanny around. 
mother and son always got along well together. But let's get back to Stevenson's arrival in New York in September. Even before he disembarked, he was swamped with reporters wanting to interview the celebrated author of Jekyll and Hyde. Stevenson couldn't help being pleased with this attention, but he was, he was also appalled. As he wrote to a friend, if Jesus Christ came, they would make less fuss. He, he tells another friend that he's quite the famous party, in fact. There are nice bits, of course, for you meet very pleasant and interesting people, but the thing at large is a boor and a fraud. He was glad to leave New York City and spend his time in the remote Adirondacks. Now, for our purposes here, the most significant person to approach Stevenson on his arrival was Edward Burlingham, the editor of the new Scribner's Monthly magazine. Burlingham gave Stevenson the most lucrative offer he'd had so far in his career, $3,500, that's £720, for one essay a month throughout the year 1888, on any subject he chose and any length. He was, he was thus being paid £60 an essay, almost ten times the amount he had been paid for essays even five years previously. He was, he was amazed at being what he called a salaried writer, and for such a salary. But he never liked writing to a deadline, and, and here he was committed to produce an essay every month. Well, we'll leave Stevenson and his commission here for a moment. Come back for part two with the discussion of the first of these Scribner's essays, A Chapter on Dreams, a really fine essay and worth hearing about. See you there. <laughs>